In the game of tennis, the one area that makes the real difference is the number of unforced errors. These are the shots that aren't caused by anyone but ourselves. The best tennis players in the world make the least unforced errors. So how in our own lives can we make less unforced errors? Well, there are three main areas of life that when we make too many errors, we can create short and long-term havoc for ourselves. Let's start with our career. Now, I've hung around enough water coolers, ping pong tables, and boardrooms long enough now to know that there are three unforced errors that if we avoid, we can make our work life so much better. Avoid allowing our ambition, our immaturity, and our arrogance to trip us up. When we're overly ambitious, well, we alienate others. We lose the support of our peers, and we only cause the boss to get a headache when she thinks about having to manage us. Immaturity shows up when we aren't thoughtful about our career moves, and we get impatient, hopping from job to job or assignment to assignment, and we show everyone that we aren't willing to wait for good things to come to us. And when we think we know better than others, or we act as though we're better than our coworkers, well, then we come across as arrogant, and no one likes someone who is arrogant. Second, we must avoid errors in our relationships. Here are just three to avoid. First, fear. We can't be fearful all the time of others and how they might actually hurt us. No relationship is ever perfect, of course. And yes, we're gonna feel pain at some point, but living with that fear will hold us back and also deny others from ever feeling like they can love us fully. And in our relationships, we must not fall into the trap of competition. Have you ever read in any relationship book or anywhere in the scriptures that we're to compete with others whom we love? No place ever. But yet we do it all the time. We compete with those closest to us and that competition drives people apart, not together. Unforced errors in our relationships can be avoided if we pay attention to what we're doing more than what others are doing to us. Another place in life that we can hurt ourselves are in our finances. Two errors lots of us make with our finances. One is to try to go it alone, and secondly is to not manage risk. Now these are easy to avoid. Find a professional to give advice and have that person create a portfolio that has well-balanced risk. You might be saying, Rusty, I don't have enough money to have a financial advisor. Well, that's not true. There's someone out there for every level of financial resource. If we're just willing to go look, not looking and allowing on our own judgment causes us to take too much risk. And that in itself is an unforced error. Now, there are also two attitudinal areas we can focus on. We're always better when we choose the future options rather than choosing instant gratification. Think with me. Can you think of anything good that ever comes from instant gratification? Advertising tries to tell us that it does, but by now, we should know better. When the choice comes, opt for the future good, not something that feels instantaneous. And lastly, we should adopt an attitude to expect the best from ourselves. Self-sabotage is an error waiting to happen. When we start thinking we can't or we aren't good enough, then we're allowing our mind to sabotage all the hard work, all the discipline, all the preparation we've done. If we rather expect the best and put the other thought behind us, then we're better ready for whatever shows up. So let's see, we covered our career, our relationships, finances, opting for the future, and expecting the best from ourselves. Reorder these 
And instead of having unforced errors dictate and direct our lives, we have a F-O-R-C-E, a force that we can count on. And we know that that force is our loving, graceful, and merciful God, who wants nothing less for us than to have an abundant and full life. And best of all, a God who doesn't keep track of any of our unforced errors. So again, you know, this is the final piece of our little mini-series, Life Apps V2. It was Rusty, my, you know, Life Project, uh, you know, kind of, he basically was a partner in the project with me, shared this whole idea of unforced errors. This is what we're talking about, our mistakes and failures that oftentimes become part of our lives and have a way of, of kind of defining us. And so we're going to try to sit with that, learn how to negotiate it. Again, I think it's helpful for us because we're going to find ourselves at times where we also we will face failures or things in our lives that you know are less than what we would have wanted, or it might be people we love who are going to have things happen to them, and we want to be able to help. And so God has so much wisdom to give us. You know, me, my my own self, I think about this day is a special day for me because it was about a year ago where I um, had vocal surgery, and so. That, and that was a very difficult year for me last year, really hard. And uh, out of that, though, there's such a sense of gratitude, just even being able to have the opportunity to share God's words and to be able to share this, this together. There's, I feel tremendously grateful for the privilege of being able to represent the Lord's heart in any way that could strengthen all of us or any of us in our faith with God. But I was thinking about this particular issue of failure and recovery, and, and I understand because inevitably we're going we're gonna to have times of failure in our life. Maybe some of us are in that right now. We're going to have periods where we fall short of our expectations. Things that we hoping would, were hoping would come out of us, it's not what did. And sometimes that's hard. Some of us might find ourselves struggling with issues that seem to hamstring us right now. In our, in, in almost like we're just having a hard time shaking them, feel a bit self-defeated. And so th this is really, I'm hoping that in these moments, in these seasons, because they may be incidents, they may have to do with a season. There might be a season in which we're struggling with something that I'm hoping that in this, that we would learn how to be, if not mildly heroic, at least resilient. And that we would reinforce our capacity to be able to move forward when it's hard, especially when we're being hard on ourselves sometimes justifiably. Now, the Bible is filled with examples of, I don't know, failure and recovery. Um, you could even suggest that the, the larger story of the Bible is about failure and recovery. Certainly it is when we think about the mission of Jesus. I mean, the whole idea of God's recovery plan for a fallen race. I mean, it really is. Failure and recovery is the story of Genesis to Revelations. If you think of it that way, it reminds us that God is a God who invests himself in recovery of lost things. When Jesus was on earth, in his ministry, he taught a, story, a series of stories, and they had to do with the recovery of lost things. He talked about a lost coin being found and the joy of that recovery. He talked about a lost sheep being found by the shepherd, the joy of that recovery. And then he talked about a lost son, the prodigal, and the joy of recovery. And really, everything about it captured the essence of what he has come to do. And, 
And again, I look at it and I go, man, God is into recovery. He loves, he loves restoring things that are broken, lost, and he loves helping us when we're failing or struggling. Keep that in mind as we look at what I think is probably the greatest example of failure and recovery in the entire scriptures that's recorded. Uh, as an individual, there's very few people that can connect with us on this as well as Simon Peter. I mean, Peter is this astonishing example of both how we can get ourselves into a bad place and then how God helps us get out of it. I, what I want to do, and you probably already noticed in the handout, you've got like a series of little pieces of scripture there. I want to use what I'm calling four brushstrokes, four pieces of scripture primarily. And I want to look at them. Now, each one of these pieces we could sit with, and I, we could do an entire series just on the passage itself. I mean, you could spend weeks here. We're going to do broad strokes. We're going to do brush strokes. We're going to try to watch how Peter finds himself increasingly in trouble until he ultimately gets himself stuck, devastated, and then how the Lord helps him get out. And then we're going to try to draw from that principles that can be helpful for ourselves when we find ourselves in those places where we're having a hard time moving forward because we feel honestly ashamed, broken, or paralyzed, maybe by our own sense of not being able to meet up to what we either sense God expects from us, what we expect from ourselves, or people we love may be expecting from us. I want to talk about that. So, hey, let's start. Let's look at how he, he starts to slip and how this thing starts to snowball in a bad direction. Go back to Matthew 16 right there. You can follow along with me. We're just going to read this together. This is what we call the rebuke. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders. This is towards the end of Jesus' ministry. He knows what's coming. He can see it. He senses it. The moment's at hand. The hour is nearing when he is going to fulfill the purpose for which he was born, to give his life away as a ransom for many, as he said, to become the ultimate sacrifice, to pay a price for us that we could never pay for ourselves. This is what Jesus' is understanding is coming. Now, he, he sees that he's going to suffer many things. And he began to tell them about it, how he was going to go to, to Jerusalem and, and how he was ultimately going to be rejected and how the religious authorities and the, and the powers that were there, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, you see it, were, were going to take him. And ultimately he says, I will be killed. And then he also says, but I will rise again on the third day. But that, that didn't make sense. What was he even talking about? It seems like the disciples got stuck on what was the bad thing that was going to happen, which is a lot of times what we would expect as well. And then we, we see that something happens that when you actually look at it objectively is so incredible. It's almost hard to believe that anyone would do this, have the nerve to do what Peter does. Because as Peter is listening to these words, he's bothered by them. For one thing, he doesn't like Jesus talking about his death. This idea about going to die and, and being delivered over in Jerusalem, that did not fit his paradigm, his conception of what Messiah was. Remember, they had all believed in Jesus, but they also had hitched their wagon to Jesus, if you will. They had all invested into that moment deeply. They believed that he was Messiah. They had no, no even remote idea that he was going to be a suffering Messiah, that this didn't even fit. And so as Peter's listening to Jesus talk these words, he does something that almost seems incredible because he says, Lord, I need, to, I need you to come over here with me for a moment. I need to talk to you. And then what does it says? Look at that. It says that he took him aside and he starts to rebuke him. He rebukes Jesus. Like Peter said, you know what, Lord? I need to correct you on something. 
All this talk about you dying and stuff, I don't know where that's, I don't know where that's coming from. Now, it says he's aside, so they're having this kind of private moment based on Peter's request. So I'm just telling you right now, that's not going to happen. I do not think Peter was even remotely prepared for the velocity of what was coming at him. There is no way in the world he could have anticipated the reaction of Jesus. It was so intense, so cutting, so profoundly provocative of, in the sense of what he was saying that Peter could have only been stunned in the moment. Look what it says Jesus did. As Peter's telling him, we're not going to let this happen to you. You need to stop saying that. I, you know, I need to correct you on this one because you're getting, you're getting yourself off, off line, out of line here. He turned to Peter and he said, now notice, there, as Peter yells out, Lord, we're not going to let this happen to you. Jesus, with the same level of intensity in a way that all of them, I'm sure, could have heard. Certainly Peter is. It says, Jesus looks right at him. He says, you need to get behind me, Satan. Look at, the, look at this. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you, you are mindful not of the things of God, but of the things of men. I, re I reject what you're saying. Compl now, Peter, he's he, he kind of mostly meant it for good. He loved Jesus. He also has some self-interest. Jesus is saying, you have no idea how hard this already is for me to have someone whom I love or who loves me. I can know you do. Have someone speaking these words to me. You're, look, something coming out of you is hellish in nature and it's trying to move me off track and I will not be moved. I know where I'm going and I know why I'm going. It's going to be hard enough to do it without you getting in the way and telling me what I can't. Do not speak that way. You do not understand what you are saying. You are thinking purely out of a paradigm that is looking at your own sense of what is powerful and author authoritative and what it means to rule and lead. You have no idea what I'm about to walk through. I do not receive what you just said to me. In fact, I renounce it. And I, in fact, I identify it as something that is designed from the pit of hell to get me off course. Wow. That was... Now, you got to remember Peter... Yes, I may have stepped out of line a little bit, but that was, that was blistering, right? That was blistering. And so as Peter is there sitting in that moment, and you remember, it's almost as if there is no resolution. It's like when we get into a, a disagreement with someone who's close to us, and it's so intense, but nothing really, it's sort of like it just ends. And there's a, it's, it's like, yes, Peter had stepped over his line. That's true, but... But now there's like this little tension. You, okay, you know what I'm talking about. When you have a relationship and something happens, especially if it's in relation to someone that you highly regard, and they say this, the, there's like a subtle tension of unresolved, something that is not really resolved now. Like, where did that come from, Lord? And as far as we can tell, there was nothing more said around it. Flash. Brushstroke number two. Second incident. Watch what happens as it devolves. Jump over to the night of Jesus' betrayal, not far after what we just saw and read about. It says that Jesus is there. He already knows things are in motion. He already knows he's being betrayed by Judas. Judas has already left, gone in the night. He's already, it's already, it's all, it's all starting to happen. Jesus is fully aware of it. He knows where it's going. He's not caught off guard. He turns to his disciples, the ones who were left, and he says, look, all of you, look at Matthew 26, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. I need to tell you something. 
all of you are going to be offended by me tonight. You're all going to, you're all going to, you're going to be scattered because of your relationship with me. He says, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's you. You're not going to be able to make it tonight. But I will also say that after I have been raised, there it is again. They still weren't getting it. I will see you, whatever that means, I will see you again in Galilee. Peter answered, he couldn't help it. And you know, sometimes when we are insecure about a relationship, we push into places maybe that we wouldn't even normally go. He's already had some tension developing. Now, now Peter pushes it even further. He says, look, what you just said about all of us being scattered and offended and stumbled because of you, he says, I'm going to tell you something. I just need to say it. I need to say it. Even if all are made to stumble, I, will, I need to say this in front of everyone. I will not. I will not. I, I will not do it. I will not be made to stumble. I, look, this is one thing I know. <laughs> I know me. I know me. I know me better than you know me. Jesus says, no, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. I'll tell you something. Before the night is out, you will not only break with me, you will deny me. Before the new day is ushered in and the rooster crows the second time to market, you will have denied me, not once, not twice. You will break with me three times and it will be an emphatic break. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't care what you're saying. I'm telling you right now, I am willing to die with, did you see it? It's almost like, the, and he's saying, I, did, I reject what you're saying. And the distance grows, the fissure takes, the fissure expands, it's there now. Jump forward. They make their way down to the Valley of the Kidron, up to the Mount of Olives, out of the city. You can still go there today, by the way. It's pretty, it's pretty. You can go to the Mount of Olives today and get an actually pretty good sense of what an olive grove was, was like where Jesus was. You can look across, again, the little valley, and you can see the city itself still there in so many ways, just like it was. Jesus is there in a garden. He knows at night. He knows essentially this is now. It's ha it is happening. And he knows where it's going. And he says to his disciples, look, there's not a lot you guys can do for me right now. But if you've ever loved me, here's one thing I would love for you to do. I need you to pray for me. And he says, I just, can you just stay up and pray? I don't even, that's all I need, right? And it says that as, as they did what, honestly, you know, praying into the wee hours of the night and into the early morning is really hard. I have sympathy with the disciples. I get it. They fell asleep, right? It started out well, Lord, 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 but then right? They just went out. I get that. I understand. It would have been hard. But here's the thing. As Jesus is praying, he utterly needs them. They're not there. We'll die for you. I, I don't need you to do that. I just need you. Could you just pray, for, pray with me? Yeah. Right? It's out. So the thing is, they're sleeping. All of a sudden, in the background, if you were from a different perspective, you looked, you could see lights flickering through the, the olive grove trees, sort of from a distance. At first, you can't really tell. It kind of looks like a sparkle. But then as it starts getting closer and closer, you see that there's more and more light. You can tell all of a sudden, wow, there's a group of people coming, and they're coming fast. 
and someone's leading them, we can't tell who. But as is, as is the case, as soon as they come, the, the disciples start to wake up, and they realize, wow, those are, the, those, are, those are soldiers coming, and they're coming to get Jesus. And Judas is leading them to where he knew we would be. And Jesus is there, and all of a sudden, Peter rises up, just as he said, I will die for you. He takes up his sword, that's what the Bible says, he takes it up, and he, he's ready to fight. And in fact, even though everything was breaking out and you couldn't see who was who, still dark, Peter then takes the sword and the Bible says he swings it. And actually, he, he hits a man. We know the man's name. Later on, evidently, he becomes part of the, the believing community in Jerusalem. His name was Malchus. Peter barely misses his head, hits him, slices his ear. That's a whole other story right there. What ends up happening is Jesus, though, in the middle of that says, Stop it! Peter, put the sword away. Do you understand that the one who, look, you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Put the sword away. You don't even know what you're doing right now. All things, are, all things are as they're supposed to be. And I can see Peter like, I can't even do this right. And before long, they just, they don't know what to do. They run. They scatter. Peter, though, he wants to know what's going to happen to Jesus. Jesus is being taken to a place to be interrogated, a courtyard. There's a courtyard there. It's still, again, the sun hasn't risen. It's still dark out, early morning hours. Peter's there, and he, there's a group of people warming their hands around the fire there, just in the courtyard. And he kind of makes his way in very stealthily. He doesn't want to be noticed. Maybe he just tries to be as discreet as possible, but he wants to see what's going to happen to Jesus. And so he's just kind of warming himself by the fire. Someone says, hey, I recognize, are you one of those guys that was part of that, that group with Jesus? The, the one that they've got in there? No, not, no, Look, not me. Look what it says. Then, then she, a girl asks him, no, I think you are. I think you are. I think you're, I think you are one of them. I mean, just the way you said what you just said, and you've kind of got that like northern accent, the Galilean accent, which is where he's from. Are you sure you're going to tell us the truth here? I'm telling you, I don't know the man. Now we pick it up. Then he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And your speech shows it. It can tell by your accent. And then he began to do what he had done before in his past. He starts to curse and he starts to swear. And he says, I tell you, I do not know the man. With a lot of other words in it. I do not know the man. I do not know the man of whom you speak. I have nothing to do with it. As he's saying that, what is amazing. Then it says, this, as he does it, then this, the rooster crows the second time. As he's saying it, the, also Luke tells us at that very moment, this isn't, Jesus is being led through the courtyard. As, as he is in the process of denying him, as the rooster is starting to crow, as that is happening, Jesus is being led at simultaneously. And when he finishes his statement, Luke says, Jesus and Peter look at each other. And the eyes of compassion break them. I told you. What does it say he does? When he thought about it, the big powerful man it was, he, he, he just breaks apart. He runs off and he is sobbing and weeping and, and he's alone and he is an utter mess. 
broken man. That's what he is at this moment. And I'm looking at that, and I'm going, wow, that is... Now, we don't know. We don't know how, who found who. Evidently, John, John finds Peter somewhere there. But it was so intense, this moment. We know that something happens, that even though Peter is utterly broken, he... It's probably because John was with him, but he doesn't, he doesn't do anything. I, I think he was tempted, by the way. I do. Some have suggested that he really was tempted to do the same thing Judas ended up doing. What do I have left to live for? Especially after he sees what happens to Jesus. Because the next day, Jesus is pinned to the cross. Utterly, brutally, pathetically treated. He dies, he's brought to a donated tomb. And I can hear Peter saying, John, you don't understand. The last thing I ever did is I denounced him. The last words he ever saw me speak, the last time I saw him, you don't understand. Right? That's what. Now, what, what happens after that? Well, the amazing thing is Jesus rises, right? <laughs> Just as he said he would. Look what it, there's a little piece of scripture here. Look at this. In Luke 24, look what it says. They rose up. This is the last piece. They rose up, and that very hour they returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Do you, what this is telling us? What it tells us is that Jesus has a private meeting. He meets with Peter after his resurrection. But we don't know anything about that. We know nothing. We don't know what was said. We have no idea of, the, of how it went, how long it was, nothing. It's almost as if, and, but here's what we do know. Even after that meeting, Peter is like this. I'm, I'm glad you're alive. It's, it's, you are who you said you were. You are who you said you were. You are a Messiah, as we believed. But I am also as you said I was. And that can't change. It changes something, but it doesn't change what I did. And you know what? You can't use a man like me. Because a man like me is no good. How do we know that happens? Because of what follows. And you know what follows? It's flash forward. Jesus, this is what I call the recovery moment. Jesus is, says, all of a sudden appears at the Sea of Galilee. They're fishing. They go back to their nest. That's what they've known. They don't know what to do. They go back and do what they've done. Peter's got this... He's stuck in a place. He's in a dark place. He's not better. Jesus, it says, is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. By the way, the Sea of Galilee, is a, it's not really a sea. It's a lake. It's bigger, way bigger than Lake Merced, but it's, it says a lake shaped like a harp, sometimes called the Lake of Gennesaret. But if you look at it, it's beautiful. In its own way, it has its own kind of unique beauty. It's, you can see it, it, it's like pastels. The water's kind of a grayish blue purple, yellows, it's, you know, this beige, it's really, it's very pretty. Jesus is there, he's making breakfast, he appears, all of a sudden he's there, just got char he's, he's got charcoals there, the Bible says, bread and fish on the fire, crackling, the aroma is really floating, wafting through the air, right? The disciples see, they go, it's him, it's the master. Because he would appear sometimes out of nowhere. He was there. 
Peter, he is in the boat. He, he's so excited for that moment, he forgets how bad he's feeling. You know what that's like, right? There are sometimes when we're in a really bad place, we have these brief moments where we forget how bad we're feeling. And he is in one of those moments. Oh, it's, it's the man, Jesus. Okay, he, he flies into the water, right? Swims to the shore. There he is. They all gather around Jesus. He's there. He's not saying anything, though. He's just kind of like making breakfast. And then, in front of everybody, maybe they talked a little bit of small, we don't know, but one thing we do know is what, what he does. He says, um, Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? How do I answer that question? Why are you doing this? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Lord, you, you, know, you, know, every, you know everything. You, you know I love you. I care. The word he uses is, I care for you. I do. Simon? Simon, son of John, I ask you again, do you love me? I do love you, Lord. Feed my lambs. Third time. It's not a coincidence, by the way. I'm asking you one more time in front of everybody, do you love me? Do you love me more than these, these nets, this life? Do you love me? It says that he was grieved that the Lord asked him. The other Gospels tell us he was grieved that the Lord asked him for the third time, do you love me? It's almost like he says, what are you trying to do, Lord? Trying to, trying to make me pay for what I did? Trying to, one time for every time I didn't. What are you doing? Why are you asking me that? What's the point of it? The point, it's like Jesus wanted him to confess his love again. And it's almost like, then Jesus goes on to say, he says, and by the way, a little bit later in the conversation, you know what you weren't able to do? I'm going to tell you, I'm going I'm to do this, tell you this. There's going to come a point in your life down the road where you're actually going to do it. What you were not able to do, I'm telling you right now, it's coming and you will do it. And you need to believe my word for you. It was you know what Jesus was doing? Jesus was saying, look, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to heal you. I, I'm trying to tie it up, stitch it up, get the infection out of there, because you need to get better. And, I, and you know one of the ways you get better? By confessing your love. Because you'll find it's not rejected. You define yourself as unlovable right now. A man who can't be used, I'm telling you, you can be used. This is something I'm doing in your life. Your failure will not be your ultimate definition. I'm telling you that right now. It's a powerful word. For, now, what are the principles for us? Here we are. Because this is where I really wanted to get to. Here they are. Just, and Lord, let us stay with this and just process it through. Finish this moment well. One of the things we're taught here is clear. When we're in a place of struggle or feeling particularly defeated by our own selves, attitudes, conduct, experience, season that we're in, whatever it is, Look to the Lord. I know it sounds so simple. Look to the Lord. Look towards the Lord when we feel this way. I look at Peter. You know what? He, he got 
he didn't know what to do when, he, when, when they came for Jesus, but he finds his way towards him in the courtyard. When he fails, at least he's looking at him. And there's a reminder there that we need to move towards God, even when we blow it. We move towards him, draw near to him. When we fall, fall forward. That's called walking. Right? So all walking is fall forward. I move towards you, God. You know, it's just like looking your way. I just got to look your way. I got to look your way. If I can do that, I'm on my road to recovery. My first step is not to run away from you, but to move towards you. Right? That, and that leads to the second piece here, which is going to sound like, but it, it really is true. Remember, there are certain seasons where survival is victory and where what we really need to do is create space for grace. I have watched things happen in my own life. I've certainly seen it in the lives of countless people who've had devastating moments. When you feel as if you failed at something, there is always a deep emotional tendency to want to compound that problem because we feel so bad. And a lot of times it's in that place where we have failed or things are caving in on us that we tend to do what is the, probably the, the least wise thing we should do, which is we react off of that and we compound our problem. One of the things that's amazing is that Peter, whether he realized it or not, he actually helped himself by not reacting. I think it was partly because of John. But he helps himself by not reacting when he could have very easily like, done something extraordinarily reckless. But somewhere between Friday, Saturday, and the Lord's resurrection, and whenever it was that Peter sees the risen Jesus and actually believes what it seemed unbelievable, that he created safety space, he created space for himself. What partly happened is the poison that was there that started to kind of, it started to leak out of his system. There, when we're in that place, we got to make sure that we give ourselves space for grace. And one of my simple sayings is, do no more harm to ourselves. I'm not saying we deny what's happening. Because, and we may be, someone will say, well, come on, where's your, maybe we can't get our attitude in a good place. But we're not compounding the problem by being hyper-reactive to what we've already made a mess out of. Peter doesn't do what happens to Judas. Judas takes his life. Peter may have felt it, but he doesn't. He doesn't know how he's going to get through it. There was no promise. He didn't even know Jesus was going to be resurrected. Secondly, he had no idea. Even if he was resurrected, which he was, it didn't matter. It didn't change who he was and what he had done. That didn't change. The embarrassment he felt in front of all of his peers, all his words, all his rash assessment of his own capacity, exposed in front of everyone. They all knew it. What is there? So, but he creates space. And then thirdly, we see the value of connectivity. We see the value of relationship. We see, the, we see the idea of why relationships matter, and especially relationships that are built around a commonality of Jesus. Why we talk about small groups, why we talk about being involved in a ministry, we talk about getting involved beyond a periphery of a community. Why? Because that's out of that context often comes friendships, out of those friendships that comes these relationships that allow us honestly to prevail in these very difficult chapters of our lives or seasons in our lives 
failure moments in our lives. And I'm not talking, I know there's some pain that comes because of choices others make and it's inflicted upon us, but there's some pain that's more a product of our own choices. That unforced error we were talking about, right? We did, nobody to blame. In fact, sometimes it's even more painful when someone does what Jesus did to Peter, which was basically said, let me tell you what's going to happen if you do this. And then we say, no, it won't. And when it happens, it's exactly what happens. That's hard. That is hard. How do you face that? One of the beautiful things we know about it is Peter finds John. John finds Peter. He's not alone. The relational investment pays off big time when things are melting down. Huge. Two better than one, three full cord, not easily broken. That's the value. That's the strength. It holds us when parts of us wants to run, quit, escape, melt down, yield to the darker side. Lastly, not least, Embrace his word of promise over our lives, over our future. This is huge, you guys, because it's what we're doing is we're positioning ourselves for breakthrough. We're saying, Lord, I choose not to allow my present situation, even if it's bad because of what I chose to do or mishandled something. I am choosing to trust your word over my life. Think about this. Okay, okay stay with me. Just hold on to this. What Peter, Jesus says to Peter essentially is this, look, I'm telling you, you're going to be okay. Not only that, I'm telling you that you're going to end up becoming the man that you thought you could never, ever be again. I'm telling you that right now. I'm working in your life. And I am letting you know in advance that I'm going to work in your life to such a degree that you are going to follow through on things that before would have broken you because you're a different kind of man now. And then Peter, you can see Peter wavering over that word. You know what Jesus is basically saying? He brings them full circle, right? He says essentially, look, look, you didn't believe me when I told you you were going to fail. But my word was true. When I told you it would happen, you didn't believe me, but it was true. Now I'm telling you, that you are going to be blessed and you are going to succeed and you're going to be a blessing to others. And now I need you to believe that word as well. The same word, the same mouth that speak, spoke to you then what was coming is now speaking to you about what's ahead. Now I need you to take that word and embrace it and hold it. You see that? You need to trust my word over your life. And for some of us, that's exactly what God is saying. Because God's saying, it's, even, it's not like the bad thing is a good thing. No, but I'm going to bring good from the bad. And what ends up be happening in this man's life, he is a different man. He's a deeper man. He's, he has humility in him that only brokenness can struggle can bring. He has empathy in a different direction than he would have ever had. And he has an understanding of God's rel un honestly relentless grace that he would have never had. There's so much that happened inside of him. And he's reminded, and how can he ever not be a reminder? And then it says, then in a way, his life becomes a message. In a way, God takes the mess and makes it a message. And we're sharing in it right now. How good is that? And that's what God has for all of us. Differing degrees, he brings good. His word over you is a good word. In these places, let's trust him. Trust the It may take a while. It may be a moment that so clearly we see something turn fast, or it may take a while. Either way. It's okay. God's deepening. God's doing stuff. Keep our mind in a good place. Trust his word over our lives. Best part of his recovery plan. Let's pray. All right. So, Lord, I thank you. Uh, as we prepare to have our closing time, our time of giving in this song, which is so connected 
to what we've just shared about getting up and trusting you. I want to ask that you would help us to do that. Help us to, to not be defined by, the, by our weaknesses and by our failures, but in our mistakes, those unforced errors, but to trust you with our future and the work that you're doing in our lives and your word over our lives. It's greater. It's greater than our weakness. It's greater than our shame. It's greater than our guilt. We have a great Savior who loves us very much. You gave everything for us. You care about our lives. You care about the difference. The effect. I look at that, Lord, and I say, feed my life. You wanted him to affect people. So it is with us, the people that will be affected by our willingness to work through things and trust you. Grace upon grace, space for grace. In Jesus' name, amen.